0: Hello and welcome to Episode 1 of Prep to Pivot Season 2, where we explore different aspects of making pivots in careers with expert guests from academia, industry veterans across banking, retail, hospitality, diplomats, to research faculty from top business schools across the world. Today, as an expert guest, we have with us Professor Deepa Mani, who is the Deputy Dean of Executive Education Digital Learning and a Professor of Information Systems at the Indian School of Business. Her research interests lie at the intersection of technology, organization, and society, and she works closely with the industry to drive innovation and strategies for the digital economy. She also works closely with the central and state governments to explore the impact of technology interventions in areas such as education, healthcare, and urbanization. Thank you so much for joining us today. And now that we've understood your career path so far, I'd like to understand what was that turning point that made you pivot into academia and research? So I think when I look back, um, I see that academia in some sense always offered me refuge from a lack of corporate career. So my initial years in corporate India were you know, if I had to define it, be defined by escapism. Okay. And so I was at IDFC unhappy. Then I moved to the um, business consulting space again Unhappy. Then I thought I'd run to the US and uh, get a job there, which I did. I went to Morgan Chase. I got. I love New York, but not quite the same sentiment towards my job. Uh, so then I, you know, I decided to do a master's at that point. I thought that would help me advance my career at speed, uh, which is what I did. And uh, I, I joined. Uh, Carnegie Mellon for a master's in information systems in their uh, school of public policy. And I think that was the turning point for me. Right? I, um, I mean, I, I just simply loved the classrooms. I loved interacting with the faculty. I loved the thesis that I worked on. And CME was a fantastic place. It was a research ecosystem. Although I was at the school of public policy, I could interact with the faculty in computer science, in the software engineering institute in the business school and all of those interactions you know were just incredibly fulfilling and I didn't want to leave school and at the end of school I did have a choice either to pursue again a consulting career uh in in Boston consulting group or um, at, at, I think at that point I, I think of myself as an accidental academic affairs. you know I think um, my master's advisor saw something in me at that point that I didn't he said, you know, the thesis that I'd written was incredible, and he thought I should apply for a PhD program at Times and other schools, which I did. And I think um, that led me to find a career that was a perfect fit with really who I was. All right. I think so. There's a little mix of serendipity in the <laughs> answer that you talked about. But uh, I want to understand when you made that decision, what was it about research that excited you the most? So, in general, I think, you know, the essence of academia and academic research, this is, you know, through critical reflection at various points in my career, I feel uh, there are the essence of academia and academic research is threefold, which appeals a lot to me. The first one is obviously impact, right? So, be it evolutionary research by Joseph Henrich that talks about what drives the success uh, of the human race relative to other uh, species, or be it uh, Kahneman and Tversky's work on the different biases that plague decision making, or research by Pharma and French about empirical anomalies in financial markets. I think you know all of these uh, research studies have enabled the search for a better world for all of us to live in, okay. right? So, uh, and these are big ideas that I'm talking about. But I think you know even in our individual capacities, uh, you know we all enable that. Like I work closely with. Industry as well as government uh, to measure the impact of uh, tech interventions, right, such as tablets in classrooms or telemedicine. And then we use those impact assessments to drive policies for the digital economy. So you know, we worked with Neeti to understand the effect of ride-sharing on congestion in Delhi that would drive legislation for that space. So impact is a big one for me, which excites me. The potential for impact and the potential to create a better world, that's one. The second is, I think, uh, the second and third are values that I believe academia and academic research espouse. And one of them is intellectual honesty. Like, there is this quote that I love. It's often attributed to Aristotle, but I'm not sure if, it's, uh, if that's the right attribution. But it says that, you know, uh, the hallmark of an educated mind is the ability to entertain a thought without accepting it and i think um, that for me embraces multiple values of significance: reasoned thinking the ability to separate an opinion or an argument um, or debate from a person um, and therefore rational pursuit of the truth and that to me is you know excites me the second value the, and therefore the third attribute is intellectual courage right so this year for instance in the u.s news rankings um, Columbia University ranked number two, right? okay. um, tied with Harvard and uh, I think MIT, and uh, outranked only by Princeton in the undergrad news rankings. And a tenured professor from Columbia's own math department, I forget his uh, name, Michael Thaddeus, uh, published a 21-page blistering critique, right, of the rankings, and used the acted sleuth used statistical analysis to essentially cast the supporting data that Colombia might have submitted as, you know, inaccurate, dubious, or even highly okay. misleading. Right? So, so, so the image that over time, you know, one has acquired also of, I think, um, uh, researchers and academics that I respect are of gadflies with a core intellectual honesty. Uh, to face down challenges and absorb criticism, right? And I like that about us. And I also think society needs more gadflies to keep it honest. So, That's absolutely yeah. right. So when you talked about you know driving impact and the rational pursuit, you also talked about the fact that as researchers you solve the big problems. So when you first started as a researcher, what would be something that you found to be more challenging than you expected? Hmm. So. Um, the, the, the commitment to intellectual rigour leads to a different bias, right? It leads to a very narrow definition of what it means to be an academic. It could potentially lead to that. So, I used to attend these conferences where, you know, researchers had painstakingly with great scientific rigour identified what seemed to me an incredibly intuitive or uninteresting problem. Uh, So I respected their work, but I found it very dissatisfying to be a part of that paradigm. And therefore, I think the big challenge, I mean, I came from a strong liberal arts background and I wanted conversations, people, my observations of their behaviour and my interactions with them to also come into the research methods that, you know, I pursued. In other words, I think to answer your question, the big challenge that I encountered was the uh, flexibility to define what it means to be an academic—that did not come easy. Uh, this obviously, you know, leads to certain biases as well, right? For instance, if you, um, you know, if you believe that there's there's this great paper in science which says that in in fields where success is attributed to innate talent uh, or genius, women are underrepresented in those fields mm-hmm. because of the stubborn hypothesis that genius is a male trait, okay. right? So therefore. Um, it's it's definitely not a female trait and definitely not an attractive female trait. so um, and you know if if you add to that that many valuations in the field are subjective right because how do you assess talent how do you assess anything right. a lot of those are uh, subjective and in that craft I, I think so there were traps of disillusionment for me that came from that right where you've perhaps felt that, um, you perhaps spent that you know this in, in some sense you had to work harder uh, or you know things like that but those were the initial traps of disillusionment I think you know overall uh, you also find quarters of people you find mentors you find different and uh, you find a support ecosystem that helps you overcome that
1: um,
0: and you also in the process um, you know find the space to be yourself and also find the flexibility to define what it means to be an academic and your kind of academic. Alright, so one thing which I got from your answer right now is uh, the fact of having an innate trait. So uh, when it comes to research work, what do you think is the most important trait that someone would need to have to not just work in research but also the industry within which you work? So in terms of values, at least for research, I think you know, intellectual depth, courage, and honesty, that's something that I spoke about. In terms of behaviors, I think perseverance, hard work, and a sense of humor, not to take yourself too seriously. Right. Um, So we we just talked about uh, this thing of having a bias and how that can sometimes affect the work that you do. So uh, other than the, the personal biases that you can face, what do you think are some of the biggest challenges that your industry is facing? When you mean industry, you mean the education industry, yes. So, I, well, I think there is, I don't know about, um, so you know, this, I don't think this is true of just my industry, but many industries today are facing discontinuous change, right, so in some sense, you've traditionally competed with uh, companies that look like you, use the same resources and capabilities as you. But now, you know, in every industry, I think alongside, you know, traditional competition that was born at the same time as you, There now sits a new class of competitors who have different principles of operation, different business models, different resources and capabilities, and they represent discontinuous change. You know, just to put some examples to what I'm talking about, I mean, look at the education industry, we spoke about this in class, right? So if you look at a new class of edtech players in the industry, they don't look like you. Uh, They don't move like you. They don't have the same capabilities, right? Your capabilities are classrooms, experience, uh, you know, different things. And they come with a completely different uh, uh, competitive uh, values and principles. So for you to be the company that you are or the organization that you are and to respond to them is not as easy as it used to be. Um, Therefore, change is discontinuous today and discontinuous change often requires you to give up the organization that you are and be a new organization and that transition i think is not easy and i don't think it's just education i think it's many very many, many sectors that face this challenge right absolutely i don't remember having this discussion on disruptions and disruptors and incumbents in class with you so uh on that note like what would you say is something that has surprised you in this aspect so i think um i, I don't I think it's the difficulty always surprises me, right? So there is one element of you know, you know, for instance, that you need to change. You know, I mean, we researchers, right? I let's say I research this option and then so therefore I know perfectly well on a the theoretical level what needs to change. But the you know but affecting that change on the ground, especially in my current administrative position as you know, someone who needs digital learning and executive education for the school, witnessing it firsthand is still surprising to me. All right. I understand so let's switch tracks right now and talk a little bit more about the research that you do so I also come from a research background pre MB, and one of the things I remember is that staying abreast of what is happening around you the state of the art to be precise is one of the most important aspects so how are some what are some of the ways that you self educate or keep yourself aware of what's happening at your field? Um,
1: well I try
0: you see, most of the work that we do is obviously embedded in an ecosystem, right? It's embedded in a research ecosystem. Therefore, to interact with the research ecosystem as frequently as possible is something I try.
1: Be it conferences
0: or seminars or talks in other schools. Uh, just getting around and, you know, having your uh, eyes and ears on the ground is one. The second is, you know, I, I try and work with as many young assistant professors as possible. I enjoy my conversations with them, you know, because they're obviously the -the state-of-the-art methods, state-of-the-art topics, how they're thinking, you know, there's something about, uh, you know, that young, uh, that fresh thinking that's there, which I find, you know, very, um, uh, you know, useful and valuable. And the third, of course, is, you know, just, i i am also not a to lock myself in my office and you know build complex math models kind of researcher, so like i said a lot of mine is in a lot of my research is informed by my interactions with industry engagement with industry etc in fact going back to your earlier question on challenges i feel you know if you look at professional schools like law medicine the research in those schools is consumed a lot by the practitioners in those fields as well, and I think for us it is it's, it's a worthy goal to think that our research in business schools should be consumed by business practitioners. Absolutely. So you know we sh- we need to be working I think closely with them to either um, uh, you know, work together if possible at all, or at least inform each other in some meaningful way. Right, absolutely. So you mentioned that you know you attend a lot of conferences, seminars, there are industry engagements. So, as a professor, how do you balance your time between developing course material, classes, research, and these engagements? I'm incredibly well organized at work. <laughs> so, I think um, I, for at least for me, for research, it's important to set aside time every week. Uh, you know, I, I, it's deep work. I need to sit with the problem, engage with it, think about it deeply. And I can't do that while multitasking and therefore it's important for me to set aside time and do that. Uh, Teaching as much as you may not like to hear is much easier. So (laughs) so, uh, that's something that I, you know, I, I, I think I don't have to try very hard to do. Uh, Teaching is also something I enjoy in terms of, I enjoy interacting with the students. I feed off their energy in the classroom. My class is completely a function of the energy that students give me in the class. So, you know, so therefore for me, a lot of that is an interactive process. um, And therefore, I, I, I don't have, you know, I have a lot of support there in terms of the students in the classroom. Research is something that I try to make time for right so when you said that you're very organized and when you set aside time for research how do you uh, compartmentalize and sort of switch off the other thousand things that must be running through your head and actually focus on the problem or think and come up with solutions i think it's a decade of practice i you okay. know so in in that i um, i have i think over time you learn to stop obsessing over things you cannot control And a degree of surrender to some of these issues comes in and I think over time I've also perfected the art of separating uh, you know my attachment to the process from my attachment to the outcome so therefore I do the best I can with the process and I really don't cut myself off of the outcome so that's something that I've learned to do over time. Uh, in terms of, therefore, switching hats is you know work, and I think many people do it in industries and organizations. Right, you you're not just working on one project; there are multiple projects. You're setting strategy for multiple business units. Sometimes you have to manage the conflicts between these business units. So those uh, you know those are things that I think uh, come to me over time. So uh, keeping in mind that research is a long time a long term game. What are some of the character- characteristics that you look for when you're hiring team members, and how do you keep your team of researchers motivated? I look for motivated researchers <laughs> when I hire them. Uh, research is something that you know is not. Um, it's the, the one thing that excites me about research. I talked to you about it from a value uh, perspective, right. but from a day-to-day work perspective, the ability to set your own agenda, the autonomy to drive. Uh, and select problems that you want to uh, research those are all very appealing right and therefore um, you know I try and look for people who are motivated by that right who select themselves um, you know who are motivated by research problems what they see around them what they observe and therefore that that selection is something that I pick over treatment. so so I have to do very little. they come in motivated uh, for me, selection and hiring is, the, is is the most important decision that one can make in a team. Uh, okay. Right, you have to select the right people, and you should. And I think that's a decision that you know at the very top you need to be involved in, uh, because there are costs to hiring the wrong people. It's the costs to them, and there are costs to you and the organization as well. And therefore, that's something that I pay a lot of attention to yeah. in terms of hiring the right people. It makes sense to be doing your research, work, spending so much time and investing uh, so much work Correct. with them. If they are not motivated, then it, it brings down the energy of Correct. the entire project. And you should not have to work hard to raise. You cannot work hard to raise ability and uh, competence, but working hard to raise motivation is not something I would really spend much energy <laughs> I can understand. So, uh, Professor Deepa, you mentioned uh, that business school research is something that needs to be more consumed by uh, industries as well. So, given this aspect, how critical is networking for an, a researcher in a business school? So, we have different tracks of faculty in the School. We have tenure-track faculty, we have clinical faculty who do more applied research, although, you know, it's always plomax to me in terms of a business school of what is applied research and theoretical <laughs> research anyway, but because most research is applied in direction of business problems, uh, but notwithstanding. We keeping that distinction, I think, uh, maybe for one category of faculty it's more important because you're working on problems of immediate relevance you're working on problems that are salient to business today and whose solutions are you know sometimes point solutions they work for one problem in one industry uh, quasi consulting so those kinds of researchers obviously have to do a lot more in terms of interacting with industry in terms of um uh, the the research active faculty i do think you know uh, interaction is important but perhaps for a different reason you know one there are some problems that are uh, solved through mathematical analysis some through data and observation and what better data and observation than those that come right from the field so right so the ability to work with industry government have them as observation points for your research have them as Validation points for your research. Uh, have them as boxes who can bounce ideas off. All of those, I think, for those reasons, interaction with industry is, you know, is is quite important. I wouldn't classify it as networking, but oh, right. definitely interacting and engaging with them, I think, is useful, at least for some classes of research and researchers. Well. Right, that makes sense. Uh, so finally, uh, I would like to understand: Would you recommend research as a career? and what kind of people or why would you recommend it? I mean, it's a generic question. Yes, every career can be recommended to every individual and there's a fit that you're looking for. Right. Um, So So maybe to understand that fit better. Correct. So, you know, the values and principles that I talked about, to the extent that they resonate with people, I think, you know, this is a great career, right? Um, I mean, one is, of course, if you find, if you want to be a voice of impact, um you want to drive impact you have a degree of commitment to pursue the truth and find solutions and find answers to unanswered questions uh, this is this is the career that allows for it and it allows you to select which questions you want to answer and how you want to answer them so there's that's the degree of autonomy and flexibility um and like i said it you know, it allows you to it allows you to do all of this in a very courageous and bold manner, right? You will be in an organization that stands for those principles. Right. And the very principle of tenure was in some sense to accord protection to the faculty, to fight the government. Right. So if you're for instance answering questions, that's that's you know right. that, that can be damaging, etc. You know, the school stood behind you. Right, and guaranteed that they will stand behind. So, I think those aspects of the job, you know, if, if you're passionate about I think it's fantastic.
1: How uh, can you pivot
0: into research? Um, well, I think you, we have an assistantship program where we have people from industry who come join us, uh, take about a year to figure out uh, whether this is a career that excites them, what does the work like in this career? And several of them go on to talk like schools, you know, um, around the world uh, with the knowledge of that process as well as some outcomes as well. to report. So yeah, I think those are some of the uh, ways in which one can transition. All right, thank you so much. So with that, we come to the end of the first segment, which is the knowledge nugget segment. And I'd like to move on to the next part, which is a rapid fire section to get Mm -hmm. to know you better. What is one thing that you wish your younger self knew about your current profession? I wish my younger self just knew about this profession. I think growing up I had lots of misconceptions about lucrative and satisfying careers. Mm -hmm. And this one didn't even feature in my opportunity set. So I think I wish that my younger self knew this existed. And I wish my younger self also knew that, you know, uh, comebacks and exits were possible. So second chances were possible because I did the this was all I am an accidental academic my second career I wish I just knew a second career was possible makes sense Um, given that you talked about a couple of people in our conversation today who would you say is your mentor or say an industry role model in research I don't have one I think you know um, I which is also something I've realized through time that there are there's no one unique leadership style there's no one normative uh, leader you know if you look at Bezos and satyana Dega they're very contrasting as leaders right They both lead incredibly uh, successful organizations right Steve Jobs, another one, very very different from another style of leadership. but you know each um, has their unique style and puts it on full display, which is useful because then the right people can select it to their organizations right and therefore you have the right fit. So I think um, many mentors, many good ones uh, if you weren't doing research, what industry would you have liked to be in? Would you be still in your profession, uh, your previous I profession? I think I would be in a creative profession. I think I would be a writer, maybe non-fiction for kids or something like that. Mm-hmm. All right, that, that's really interesting. Um, given that, what are you currently reading and do you have any book that you'd like to recommend to our listeners? So um, Bhagwan and I have this series called Matrium Talks. And in the most recent one we had had the most recent season, we did books we love, literature we love. So there are a whole bunch of books there that, you know, uh, the seven, you know, all of which, uh, there's uh, The Secret of Our Success by uh, Joseph Hendrick. There is uh, another book called Wired by him. There's my absolute favorite author of all times, Chris Richards. Uh, with arguably a series of essays, there is Hoffman's, The Case Against Reality, there's a bunch of books there that we profiled and talked about, every one of which I find incredibly fascinating. Alright, so I think I can understand that reading is definitely something you do in your personal time, but other than that, what is one thing that you would say that you do to energize yourself, just something that you do for yourself? Um, I like solitude and therefore a lot of activities that correlate with it, like painting, long walks, <laughs> um, anything that you know allows me time with myself is something that I get very little of and therefore I truly appreciate the value. <laughs> that makes sense. Well, I think with that we've come to the end of our rapid fire section and I'd just like to thank you so much for taking the time out to give our listeners so many inspiring nuggets to take away from today's thank you.